Well, please turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Titus chapter 2. That's where we're spending our time this morning, in Titus chapter 2. And we're thinking about the life-changing Jesus. Last week we thought about the cosmic Jesus, the one who made all things and sustains all things. And this week we're seeing how Jesus helps us in the nitty-gritty of our daily lives. Now, when it comes to Christmas, I'm sure that there are many in here who like things to remain the same. So every Christmas... We do the same things at the same time, in the same way, with the same people. You know what I mean, don't you? You've got the same songs that you listen to. You've got the same food that you eat. You've got the same um, uh, uh, different traditions that you do as families and as individuals. And there we are. We do the same things, and we know what's going to happen on that day. We do that. And we like that because it's comfortable. We like it because, well, there's no change. It's all the same. Now, some people really love that tradition. But I know there's others who just like to do things differently and try things differently. And I think some of the adverts this year, if you've seen them, I think the M&S one especially is talking about try something different. Don't bother with traditions anymore. Do your own thing. And maybe that's you. You want to try something a bit different. Well, in our passage today, as we're thinking about a bigger Jesus, we're going to look at the consequences of why he came. We're going to look at how the fact that Jesus has appeared and come to this world will change us and transform us if we truly grasp what he's done. Maybe there are things in your life today that you know aren't good. They're not good for you, and they're not good for people around you. Maybe it's the words you use. Maybe it's the uh, thoughts you have. Maybe it's the actions you have. Maybe it's an attitude that you have. You know that they're damaging you and damaging others, and you wish you could change. You wish you could stop them. You wish you could stop those thoughts or that action or those things that you do, but you just can't seem to stop it. We just get to seem, seem to get stuck in that rut, and we just keep on doing the same things. Is there any hope? Well, we're going to see this morning, as we gaze on Jesus, as we think on him, that he can and he has got the power to change us from the inside out. Look at the first verse of the few verses we're looking at this morning, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. As we grasp what uh, is being told here, it is life-changing. It really is. The word for appeared there um, comes from the Greek word for, for epiphany, the word we use, epiphany. We've used that word, don't we, epiphany, um, when we think of an idea or a breakthrough moment. I've had an epiphany. You know, this, I've got the idea. This is it, the moment. But it means something that was invisible has now been made visible. Something that was visible has now been made visible. Now, uh, when we think about that, when we think about um, uh, this and how it was used back in this time, it was often used when the sun was coming up. So we didn't, don't see the sun um, for the night, but then in the morning, it is, there's an epiphany. The sun is shining. Or another way it was used back then was when a hero uh, kind of appears suddenly uh, when they didn't see them and they come and save the day. And that kind of epiphany, that kind of arrival of this um, hero is a scene that we see time and time again in, um, throughout films and stories, isn't it? There it is. You see a character and they are in desperate danger. They seem pinned to a corner or pinned to the floor. They're about to be killed in whatever way that is. And suddenly this other person comes along. The hero who we might have thought was dead or might have thought had gone away suddenly appears. There's this moment, there's this epiphany where they come back and they come and save the day. Or in the same way here, that's the kind of idea we have. 
that Jesus, verse 11, it tells us, the grace of God, Jesus Christ has appeared. And when he comes, he comes to save. The light is coming. And when we grasp that the light is coming, when we see that Jesus is coming, it sheds light on four things for us this morning. Four things for us to grasp as we pray that God will help us to see this life-changing Jesus. The first thing it sheds a light on is this. It shows us our need. Jesus' appearance and his coming shows us our need. So Jesus appears, he comes, verse 11, and he says, look at what we're told about him. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. How does Paul sum up Jesus? He says, the grace of God. The grace of God. The word grace is God's undeserved love. His, uh, his, uh, how we experience his undeserved kindness. We don't deserve his love or his kindness. But here we see this undeserved love and kindness come in from God. Another way of thinking of it is this. It's his free help. The free help of God has come, has appeared. Now, why is it come? It's come, verse 11, to bring salvation for all people. It brings salvation for everyone. In verses 1 to 10 of uh, Titus 2, Paul's talking to the young and the old. He's talking to women and to men, different ages, different backgrounds. And so in that context, he's saying, look, whatever your background, whatever you've done, Jesus has come for you. Jesus has come for you. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, do you see what this is telling us? When we step back and just see what it is saying, it's saying this. Jesus has come because we can't save ourselves. We need a savior. We need salvation. And this is something we need to keep on hearing. Because if we are to really be amazed at Jesus, really see him as bigger than we do right now, we need to see how much we need him. You see, if you're just sitting in your lounge, you're eating your mince pies and watching a wonderful It's a Wonderful Life or whatever your favorite Christmas film is, you're there sitting there, um, nice and cozy, and then the fire team, the fire brigade come rushing in, breaking through your door and said, we've come to rescue you. And you look around and think, well, I'm fine. I don't need you at all. What are you doing? Fix my door, that kind of thing. Now picture the scene again. You're in your home, but there's a fire raging and it is out of control and you are in big danger. And suddenly then, the fire brigade come in, they bash through your door and they say, we've come to save you. How do you view them that time? Well, they are your rescuers, they are your saviors, they are everything. You see, if we are sitting comfortably thinking we don't really need Jesus, then we won't see him as special. We won't see him as big. But here we're told, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, because we need him. We desperately need him. As we look around the world today, isn't it clear to see that we need a saviour? We can't seem to do it, can we? We just, things just keem, seem to be making the same mistakes time and time again. As you look back on history and we look back on today, however far advanced we are in with technology and other ways, we still seem to be in the same mess. And personally, as you look at your life and heart, isn't there chaos there? Isn't there mess there? We need a saviour. We need a rescuer. We can't seem to keep our own standards, can we? We know we let others down. We need somebody. Why is it that we keep on saying things we say we'll never say again? Doing things, seeing things, going there. We say things we wish we didn't say. We hurt people we wish we didn't hurt, but we keep on doing it. So here is Jesus, and he comes and he says, the grace of God has appeared to bring salvation. He's come to save and to rescue. 
See, the big, big misconception of Christianity is this, isn't it? That uh, it's all about sorting yourself out. Christians are people who've got it together and then they're kind of living this religious life, this respectable life, and if they're good enough, they're hoping to go to heaven. That's kind of how Christianity is um, uh, perceived from outside. But the reality is that a Christian is somebody who knows they're not good enough, knows that they need a saviour. Here's a verse that people think are in the Bible, but it's not. God helps those who help themselves. People think that's in the Bible, it's not. But actually, the reality is we can't help ourselves. We are lost. We are drowning. We're in the fire, as it were. But then the Saviour comes. The grace of God has appeared. We're we're, with our backs against the wall. We're in our mess. We're unable to save ourselves. Jesus comes to offer free forgiveness and salvation, to rescue us from the mess that we're in. See, Jesus came to save. And how did he do that? Well, we've sung about it. We thought about it. The, the birth of Jesus has happened because he came for a purpose, which was to die. He came to die and rise again to save us and rescue us because we can't do it ourselves. The grace of God, we can't do it. He does it for us. You see, when we realize what Jesus has done, when we realize he lived the life we could never live, he died the death we deserve to die, it is then we start to grasp, wow, he's done that for me. It shows us that the cross shows us that he died because of our sin. He died because of our rebellion. And when we see that it's me who put Jesus on the cross, it exposes sin in our lives. It exposes what we've done and how we failed it. And so how is Jesus summed up in this passage? It is not uh, he has come to give you some tips on life. It is not he's come to give you some advice to make your life a bit more comfortable. No, the grace of God has appeared because we need a saviour. Have you recognised today that you need a saviour? Are you trying to do it on your own? Are you trying to uh, reach God on on your own? Or today, can you accept that Jesus came because we can't do it on our own? See, the the appearance of Jesus, first of all, shows us our need. The second thing it shows is this. It shows us our path. So if you look at verse 12 now, um, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness with worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So Jesus' appearance shows us we need saving, uh, but the great news is Jesus helping us and saving us isn't just something that's distant and something far away from our daily life, but no, it impacts every single day, every day how we live. And notice in this verse, there's two things it says. The first thing is this appearance of Jesus helps us to say no, first of all. It helps us to say no. It says it trains us, the grace of God trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Because of what Jesus has done, because of his coming into this world, because of his amazing love, it means that we can say no to what God hates. It means that those passions that grab hold of us and and ruin us, we can say no to because Jesus is more powerful. The passions that grab us and keep us hooked, Jesus says, you can say no because I'm more powerful. Now, how does the grace of God teach us to do this? That's what it's saying, isn't it? The grace of God has appeared teaching us to to say no to these things. How can the grace of God change our hearts? Well, one good way to ask this is this. What's the opposite of grace in the Bible? The opposite of grace in the Bible is law. There's grace and law. Law, in in, uh, Romans 6, it tells this. You're not under law, but you're under grace. There's the contrast. 
What's the difference between law and grace? Well, let's think about law for a moment. Law, the law of God, simply tells us what to do, but it doesn't help us to do it. So it's an outward command, and God's just a law that says, do this. And so you hear it, and you might try and obey it, but actually the reality is we can obey it without our hearts being touched. And it'll only last so long. It means we can end up obeying reluctantly. It means we can end up doing things just because, um, we, we, not that we want to, but just because we think we should obey. But this verse is saying it's not so much law we need, but we need grace. We need to understand what he has done. And when really is that Jesus came to save us, to help us out of our mess, to rescue us, he gave his all for us, he pours his heart out for us, he died so that we can be saved. What does that do? What does the grace of God do? Well, suddenly we start to see the one who tells us to live in this way is telling us that because he loves us. He tells us to stop uh, and follow him because the way we're going is going to destroy us. See, God wants to change us, not just by saying, do this, but he wants to change us from the inside out, to change our hearts, to love him more. In chapter 3, verse 5, we get uh, touched on, and he saves us, it tells us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When you trust in Jesus, the Bible tells that the, uh, we are filled with his spirit, and he changes our desires. We'll want to obey him, not just told you must, but say, I want to obey you now. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. And when we realize what he's done, that's what starts to happen. Our eyes get open to the goodness of God and what he's done for us. A life changed on the, from the inside out. God loves you so much, but he stopped at nothing. He sent his son for you. And when you grasp that, then we see, Lord, you've done this for me. How can I not follow you? This is how Spurgeon put it in one of his sermons. When I thought God was hard... I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Can you see that when we realize the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, it changes to see that God loves you and he's good and his ways are best. So we can say no because of the grace of God. Here we come to see that grace teaches us to say no. But also we see that grace teaches us to say yes in verse 12, training us to renounce, to say no to, uh, to ungodliness and worldly passions. But it says we can say yes to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He's saying we can live lives that say no, but also lives that say yes to being self-controlled, to following God's ways. And sometimes we think, well, a self-controlled life sounds it sounds dull, it sounds hard, it sounds restrictive. But when we realize that this God of grace is telling us, he's actually saying this is the best way to live, and this, in this kind of self-controlled life, that's where you're most free. I've told you before about when I studied music um, in university, I really hated the practice rooms. Because when you go down into the practice rooms, you could hear everybody else playing. And I just felt so rubbish on my instrument, I thought, oh, I, these people are so good, but they would be there so much more than me, practicing, practicing, practicing. They'd be playing their scales, their arpeggios, their pieces. They'd be working hard. And they kind of restricted themselves because they said no to doing one thing so that they could practice. And they'd practice, and they'd practice, and they'd practice. But then when you saw them play the instrument, they were free. 
They could do whatever they want with that instrument. They could play whatever they wanted to play, and they could make it sing in a way that was wonderful. You see, actually, their, their potential was unleashed when they restricted themselves somewhat. And you can apply that to you know, uh, sport as well, can't you? You see people running fast or, or being very strong or uh, whatever it is. How can, they, how, can they be so, how can that potential be unleashed? Because they've said yes to being self-controlled. They've said no to other things, and that's set them free. In the same way, God tells us that actually a self-controlled life is how we're meant to be when we follow his ways. And that's how God's word helps us and shapes us. We say no to things God doesn't love, ungodliness. Say yes to the things he does. And when we realize that, then it brings us joy. Then it brings us satisfaction. Then it brings us a, a fullness in life that nothing else can bring. So the grace of God has appeared, and it teaches us to say no, but also to say yes. See, this isn't law that says do, 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 but grace that changes from the inside out, and there's a big difference there. John Bunyan, who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, wrote this little um, few lines of uh, poetry. Uh, and listen to this poem, he says. He says, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. You see, the law says do, do, do. But God says, no, no, no. I've done it. Trust in me and now I can help you by my spirit to live this life. You see, can you imagine a, a young couple? They, they are deeply in love. And you say to them, right, what you need to do is you need to uh, message each other at least three times a day. You need to be spending lots of time together and you need to talk together. You need to buy each other a gift maybe once a week. Uh, you need to tell your friends and keep talking about each other with your friends. Is that what you need to do? Do you need those rules? Well, one sense, you don't need them at all, do you? Because that is what happens. When you're in love, you will do those things. You will talk and share and not shut up about someone. You'll spend time talking with them, spending time with them. Because when the heart is changed and captured by something better and glorious, then we will be with them and spend time with them. When you realize how much God has loved you in sending his son Jesus, we realize then, because he first loved me, then I can love him. Today, if you're struggling in these certain areas that we've mentioned, maybe in being self-controlled or with ungodliness or with all of these things, what do we do? Well, we start by thinking about what God has done for us in the gospel. He has come to save you in your mess, save you in your sin, to set you free. When was the last time you really spent time thinking about how much God loved you, really stopping and thinking about the cross, picking some songs or hymns that help you to think that through, reading a book that will get you focused on that, talking to others and say, can you help me to think about how great Jesus is, when we realize how loved we are, how accepted we are, not by our works, but by his, it is then our hearts start to change from the inside out. Listen to how one writer puts it. He says this, every time I deliberately disobey a command of God, it's because I am in that moment doubtful as to God's true intentions in giving me that command. Does he really have my best interests at heart? Or is he withholding something from me that I would be better off having? Such questions, whether consciously asked or not, lie underneath every act of disobedience. However, the gospel changes my view of God's commandments in that it helps me to see the heart of the person from whom those commandments come. When I begin my train of thought with the gospel, I realize that if God loved me enough to sacrifice his son's life for me, then he must 
be guided by that same love when he speaks his commandments to save me. Viewing his commands and prohibitions in this world, I can see them for what they are, friendly signposts from a heavenly father who's seeking to love me through each directive so that I might experience his very fullness forever. You see, the gospel and the grace of God shapes how we view God's love and his commands towards us. He doesn't want to restrict us. He wants to set us free and protect us because he loves us so dearly. So the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no and to say yes. So why did Jesus come? What does the appearance show us? It shows us our need. Secondly, it shows us our path. And the third thing it does is this. It shows us our goal. It shows us our goal. Look at verse 13 with me. Did you notice the word appear came twice in this passage? Because it says the grace of God appeared in verse 11, but verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is coming back, we're told. That's something that should help us and transform us. That's something that should change us. Uh, So we're in this time now where we're battling with the temptations and the struggles of life, where we're battling with the chaos and the mess and the darkness of our hearts. That time is coming to an end. We won't have to battle always. When Jesus returns, as 1 John tells us, we will be like him. Are you living for the next world or for this world? Do we have our eyes fixed firmly on uh, what is coming next? We're at a time where the struggles will cease. Or are we investing only in this world? See, those worldly passions which we're told about here will continually disappoint. But there's a world coming where we will know satisfaction forever with our God. And the fact that he is returning brings us into sharp focus about what life's about. It puts it into perspective that this world is fleeting. This world, this life is passing. Uh, Mark Ashton, who was a rector of uh, Church St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge, when he was diagnosed with cancer, he wrote about it. Uh, He was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He knew that his death was coming. And he said these words. Once you have been told you are going to die, the months that follow are a very good time spiritually. The news is a spiritual tonic. I can now see that much of what I've striven for and much of what I've allowed to fill my life these 40 years have been of dubious value. I'm not now going to gain any further reputation or achieve anything more of significance. I realize how little that matters. While physical things spoil and go dim, spiritual things go brighter and brighter. You see, he brought, his diagnosis brought eternity into sharp focus. And when we live in the light of the second appearance of Jesus, then we start to see that actually one one day these things will be so different. There will be a place where there's no more sin and struggle and temptation No more sadness or depression or tears. No more sickness or pain or doubts. No more goodbyes. It'll all be gone. And we'll be forever with Jesus. Aware of him and his love for us. Accepted and known forever. There'll be an eternal rest. The striving and strain will be over. And that's where we're headed. And because of that, when that captures our heart, our vision of that is big, then it brings this life into sharp focus. We will live in the light of it. Are we living in the light of Jesus' second appearance? I know we're thinking about the first appearance of Advent, but here we see 
the great hope, the blessed hope of his appearing, his second appearing. You know what it's like when, if you're maybe left in the home on your own, I know when Lisa, maybe when she goes away with some friends for the weekend, um, my life that weekend, towards the end, is sharply brought into focus when she's going to return because the washing up needs to be done or you know, the tidying needs to be done, you need to put the hoover around because she's coming back. You don't need to look estate when she's coming back. In the same way, when Jesus is returning, that brings into sharp focus. What am I focusing my life on? What am I spending my time on? Jesus is coming back. And that day when he comes back, it won't be hidden away in the Middle East. Every eye will see him. Every tongue will then confess that he is Lord. Are we living in the light of this blessed hope? And just as a side note, there's a real comfort in Jesus' return. If you're facing things today and you think, I just can't go on, it's it's too hard. I can't keep fighting this struggle, this sin. I can't keep facing this pain or this this trial. Can you see? There is a day coming when it'll all be taken away. Keep going. It's not forever. But forever with Jesus is forever. So keep your eyes on him as we look forward to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. So the appearing of Jesus shows us, first of all, it shows us our need. We need a Savior. We can't do it on our own. So that's why we need his grace. It shows us our path. The grace of God transform our hearts to saying yes and to saying no. And it shows us our goal that one day we'll be forever with him. The last thing it shows us is this. It shows us our worth in verse 14. Now, the appearance in the, of the grace of Jesus is, is quite something. But look at what we're told about how he saved us in verse 14, how he saves us. He gave himself. Remember who we were thinking about last week, that Jesus, who made all things and sustains all things, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous to do good works. Jesus gave himself. Why? To pay the price to set us free. He's using here, this language is so full of Old Testament language. He died to set us free, uh, to redeem us, to pay the price to set us free from slavery, to make sure now that we can be free from sin so we can say no because Jesus died for us. And verse 14, he says there, as he carries on, he says, uh, from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people uh, for his own possession. So to summarize that verse, you could say like this, God has paid a price so that you could be his very own, his pure, treasured possession, passionate about godliness. So God paid the price so that you could be his very own, treasured possession, passionate about godliness. Can you see this language here? It reminds us of Deuteronomy 7, where Jesus says, you're a people, where God says, you're a people holy to the Lord, um, the Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You are treasured to God. You are precious to him. So often when we think about um, kind of the ungodliness in our life and the things we do wrong and the way we've hurt others, we can feel like the most unlovely people in the world, can't we? But here we're being told that God loves you this much. He is, you are his treasured possession. How precious are you to him? He gave the most precious thing he could. He gave it all so that you could be rescued. That was the price paid to set you free. The price paid so that you would no longer need to listen uh, to the voice of Satan, 
uh, to the, the power of the flesh because Jesus came to set us free. See, how does this change things? We haven't got some dictator in the sky, but a loving God who dearly loves us. A loving God willing to stop at nothing to show you that he loves you and to rescue you from all the things that can destroy us and our sin. Jesus laid down his life to set you free. Now this morning, what are you going to do with Jesus? We're praying for a bigger view of him. In this passage, we're told that the grace of God has appeared. He's come. What are you going to do with him? Are you going to ignore him? Are you going to say, no, I, I don't want to know him? Are you going to try and live life on your own, trying to reach God on your own? Never do it. Jesus come to you. And maybe for the first time today, you need to accept him. Maybe for the first time, you need to say, Lord, I can't do this. Save and rescue me. And if you are a Christian, maybe today is a time where we need to pause and think, Lord, I've been wandering from you. I've taken my eyes off you. And I've thought I could do this on my own. Spend time now thinking of what Jesus has done for you all that you mean to him and all he means to you. And then pray that the grace of God would help you to say no to things that displease him and say yes to things that do please him, living in the light of his glorious return. Let's pray that we are a people with our eyes fixed on Jesus uh, as he shows us our need, shows us our path, shows us our goal, and then shows us our worth. Let's pray together as we close. Father in heaven, we pray, please, that you'd help us to live lives that bring glory to you. We pray that you'd help us to live lives that um, really do speak and show others just how much you mean to us. That we thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you appeared, that you came that first time. The grace of God has come. Help us now, Lord, to live in the light of your second coming. Lord, the, the great and glorious return of our glorious Saviour. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.